Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, and welcome back to Your Tables Ready. I'm your host, Carol Hadar. Today we're speaking to Roshan, co-founder of Nightjar. Nightjar is London's most highly acclaimed speakeasy. I've never felt less cool than when I've tried to get into Nightjar and been turned away several times. With it being named one of the top 50 bars in the world several years in a row and holding multiple industry awards, it would make sense that you'd need to book weeks in advance. But it's well worth the wait. The entrance to Nightjar is through an unmarked door near a chicken shop on Old Street Roundabout. You can just about hear the jazz playing and taste the craft prohibition style cocktails being made in the bar below. The elusive bar was created by husband and wife team Roshan and Edmund. They ditched their day jobs to run a bar that they themselves wanted to hang out in. Today there's no shortage of speakeasies in London, but when they created Nightjar back in 2010, they really pioneered the trend. One review of the bar said, Nightjar is the kind of place that all other speakeasies aspire to be when they grow up. I couldn't agree more. The two of them went on to open up two more successful bars, Oriel in Smithfield Market and Swift in Old Compton Street. In this episode, we're going to cover the couple's journey, opening all three bars, also talk about the bumps they hit along the way and how they overcame them, and then the kind of kits you can get from them during the lockdown. But before we jump into that, Roshan actually contracted coronavirus at 28 weeks pregnant, so I had to ask how that experience went. Here's Roshan. It was basically almost in line exactly with lockdown. There was an awful week. Um, I mean, basically, on Tuesday, the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Night, we shut down uh, Nightjar and Swift. Oriel had shut down on the Monday night because that was following the PM's advice that people should avoid bars and restaurants. And about, about, I think, on that same day, I got sick. So we went into lockdown then with me having had it. And oh then, and so it was incredibly stressful, obviously for well, for, for for both of us, but for my husband in particular. I mean, that week I was helpful because I I just got sort of mild symptoms, and I we were you know dealing with the accountants and you know and messaging and staff concerns and everything like that, and and worrying nervously about you know um, how we were going to pay staff and keep everything going. And then on Mother's Day, I properly went down and was in bed then with fever and um, and all the rest of it. And then toward oh. the end of the week was when the when I had the breathing problem. So during that week, my husband was dealing with um, uh, everything, you know, homeschooling our two children and uh, continuing to shut down the businesses or mothball them, and also nursing me. And his were you brother, just completely bed bound? Yeah, I was just bed bound. Yeah, it was like really bad flu. Yeah you know, fever, aches, things like that. And I was a bit breathless, but um, I'm pregnant. So, you know, that's, I mean, like, I'm a third, third trimester, so that's just normal. But then, and then I had a day, a day, a full storm when I thought I was better and spent time with the family and then went back to bed that night and was, I mean, it, I mean, the breathing, the breathing was so bad that, um, you know, I had to sort of gear myself up mentally to get to the loo, which is not, is about sort of three metres away from our bedroom. And then I'd have to, you know, gear myself up mentally to get back to bed because it was, it was, I was just so breathless. And I mean, I've never, I'm, I'm 39, I've never really had anything, any bad health like that. But it is a real eye-opener, you know, when you can't actually oxidise enough to move a few metres. 
And then it just got progressively worse, you know, like the report, the tightening of the chest and not feeling like you can breathe and things. And so by the time I went into hospital, it was pretty bad. But fortunately for me, it was I only spent a night on quite a low level of oxygen before everything returned to normal. But yeah, it was not fun. And it was not fun. It was, it was, I mean, sort of fascinating, but also quite frightening to be on a coronavirus ward and hear, you know, the sort of progress of people around you who were not doing as well. So, Gosh, yeah. Which hospital were you in? I, I was in the Whittington. Yeah. And they were great. Um, but yeah, I mean, the poor people around me, you know, are struggling and they were on those the, the 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 I didn't go on a sort of CPAP, you know, the face mask. Okay. I think the PM was on, but people around me were, and it did not sound. I mean, it sounded frightening, and I think the worst thing is that it's frightening for people, and they they can't be with their family, you know, so they're sort of managing it alone. Oh gosh, of course, so you were alone in the hospital. Yeah, I was alone. I was. I had a lot of support, obviously, from family and things, and I have a mum who is a medical professor. She's a, she's a nurse. She owns a residential care home. And ironically, I was worried about her before all this started because um, she's got diabetes. She's running a residential care home. She's like right at the coalface. Um, but fortunately, has she was in lockdown from February, so she hasn't had anything anything enter the nursing home. But um, she she basically uh, I was trying to I was trying to not worry her and tell her how bad I was. But when the breathing got bad, I called her. And then she started to sort of coach me through it, really. And, you know, they're sort of telling you that, you know, your scan looks bad, but they don't really know how it's all going to end up. But, you know, they're going to do whatever they can for you, which is quite frightening. My God, yeah. But I had my mum telling me to ignore all that. I was going to be fine. And um, I wondered, you know, if the people around, you know, if the people around me had good support, you know, people who could give them a different perspective and keep them hopeful and things so yeah it was not it was not fun oh. but well I'm glad you you'd live to tell the exactly. <laughs> tell the tale I know, and I'm oh. going to enjoy the next 60 years of my life I think in a way that I never would have <laughs> before without that perspective so um I'm very happy to be here frankly <laughs> oh god yeah of course yeah well yeah. so I mean it must be really interesting I mean, you've got three incredible, very successful bars. Yeah. I saw that you guys started doing a, a cocktail delivery kit. How's that going? Yes, it's going quite well. It just launched last week. So Swift launched slightly earlier than Nightjar and Oriole. And um, yeah, it's taken off quite well. Um, you know, a few orders so far, but we've only just started to promote it. But, uh, you know, I think from we're on quite a few industry WhatsApps and things, but People have an appetite for it, and um, they seem to have an appetite for cocktails specific to the bars that they love rather than necessarily classics or whatever. So deliberately sort of worked on popular cocktails and clarified them and used different techniques and things to make sure that they last in the bottle and try and deliver a very nice drink to people at home, uh, just like they get in the bars. It's been quite fun. Sort of strange to launch a whole other business in this time, but it is it is interesting, and I think bars are going to have to do that even once things open up again. Really, have different streams of business because we don't really know what we're headed back into and or how long it could last. You know, I mean, this a one meter rule would help uh, rather than two meter because you know, for a bar like um, Oriole, which is large, we could probably you know make it work, but Nightjar is more difficult. 
And, and, you know, I suppose we trade on kind of that cosy, intimate feeling. It's a bit strange to um, imagine, but I think these cocktail deliveries will help. And we're also thinking about perhaps doing um, Speakeasy. This, our company is called Speakeasy and it operates Nightjar and Oriole. Speakeasy Entertainment, we're thinking about doing um, parties at home. You know, they're talking about these 10 people bubbles that you're allowed to have. Thinking about sending bartenders and the chefs into people's homes and uh, musicians and things so people could have parties at home. So I'm just trying to think at home rather yeah, and think of different ways to deliver what we do, but, you know, in this new environment. Let's talk about how you guys actually came up with Nightjar and then and then the others afterwards. It's it's an incredible story. You you were working at Christie's and your husband was working as a teacher. Yeah. And you decided then to just, I mean Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we, we met at university in Dublin. I'm a singer, not an amateur singer, but um, singer nonetheless. And um, we went to a gig by a great singer uh, in Dublin, but it was in a really dingy pub. And it was sort of Berlin jazz in the 30s. And we just had a moment where we were like, God, this is great music, but this is totally the wrong environment. Wouldn't it be great to be in, be back in that time and have a place that was the perfect stage for that? And that's sort of where the seed germinated and you know we toyed with it a lot for over the years and then we thought we'd better get good jobs you know pipe dream and then after having done about two three years of normal jobs we thought gosh this isn't all it's cut out to be why don't we try our idea and uh, if it fails you know we're still young enough to get proper jobs again and so that's sort of where we started looking for a bar and we found that space that would become Nightjar in Old Street in 2008 and I mean, basically, when we walked in, we were like, wow, this is this is a proper speakeasy. And what was it at the time before you bought it? It was quite a sort of dodgy bar that had was uh, belonged to, I was operated by some Russian traders. It was not very well kept, and I think it had lost its license. So it actually took us about two years to get all of the paperwork done and to to get it up and running, basically. Did you carry on working a normal job while you sorted all that out, or had you guys already quit? Well, no, actually, yes. So Edmund, Edmund, as you said, he was a teacher. So he continued to do um, teaching, ad hoc teaching. And um, I had left Christie's, I'd gone off. And then I was working part time in uh, doing arts marketing for a, an arts council funded organization. And also, I, I because actually, I think we decided in 2008, we would do the bar, but we found it in 2000. 2009 and so I started an MA in producing for live performance just to get some experience or some idea of what we would be doing because I had no experience in producing you know live music or anything like that so yeah so I continued to do that in the first year of operation and work part-time and so did Edmund and then after about a year, I think, we both then were able to give up those jobs and couldn't work full time on the bar. You were self-funded, right? You didn't have to raise any money to get the bar, get it going or anything. For Nightjar, we didn't, yeah. Because we opened in, I mean, it was incredibly cheap and it continues to be affordable for what it is. But we opened in 2008, which is obviously, um, you know, depressed economical climate. So there were deals going. And uh, we did a sort of reasonably inexpensive fit out. And it's quite a small space, Nightjar. So, yes, we self-funded that, but 
thereafter we had to borrow money <laughs> for the other did part. you yeah did you buy it or were you renting it no we're renting it okay we sometimes not buying it but I don't know that that was ever necessarily on the cards they were very keen that we got in there and started renting as soon as possible but uh, also you know we had we had no experience in bars and things so it would have been a real leap of faith to buy it at that point yeah yeah but looking back it would have been a great idea how did you know how to fit it out? Like, did you have to hire someone to help you do the interior design? Yes. Yeah, so we, we contacted a, a designer who's now very well known called Lee Broom. He did a, a package for us, which I don't think he does anymore, but where he came up with the kind of look and feel of it, put it together in a folder, you know, of examples of sort of materials and paints and all the rest of it. But then amazingly, Edmund, together with the contractor, pulled it together and sort of project managed it. So we didn't really have any sort of planned drawings or any of the sort of fancy things that we have nowadays. But yeah, they did a great job. And and it was designed by a really good designer, but not in person. I guess they told you where to buy all the stuff. And then you yeah. could just... They gave, I mean, yeah. often they gave us, I think, I think from memory, there were some very specific things, but it's just other times it was like a texture like this. He did actually, He the mirrors, which are quite sort of iconic, we were trying to find other people to do them, but it was a really difficult thing to pull off. And so we went back to him, I think, at that stage for the mirrors. Um, but everything else, the panelling and the paints, we just sort of did ourselves. And the name? The name, so the name um, actually was our friend's mother. We said, we want to use a bird name and why birds because all three of your places are named after birds yeah I know I don't know why I think that at the time I think we thought it fit quite well we quite liked the um you know back in the 30s and things you remember those old books they had at the ahead of every chapter they have like a repeated logo or um you know yes yes and we quite liked the idea of that for the menu and also it's going to be a music venue so we thought well you know birds are singers um so we just need a bird that is like like obscures itself at night and is a singer. And uh, a friend's mum casually, I asked her the question, she casually sort of said, oh, what about night jars? And I, we thought, God, that's amazing, actually, because obviously it's a nighttime bar. Night, a night jar closes at 3.30 on weekend nights. And also, you know, in Irish lingo, a jar is a drink. Ah. And then we had a, a round table discussion with our friends who all kind of nixed it and get come up came up with about five other names <laughs> I remember we shut the door on them and looked at each other and we were like let's just ignore that we like nightjar and we'll, we'll, let's go for it I have heard from other entrepreneurs like you shouldn't really ask too many people just go with what you what you want yeah yeah I'm glad we did because it's good I, I continue to love the name Oh yeah, I love it. Yeah, and the did you have to hire someone to create the logo for you as well? Yes, we did. We did. We did all of that. I actually can't remember who that was. It was like nearly a decade ago now. But we we based it on um, old prints and things from that we found online, and someone sort of sketched it up. I want to say maybe the guy who's continue who's a good friend of ours who's done all of the playing cards from the start, who's a, he's an architect now, he was training, he's called Henry Thorold. He's done all of the um, artwork for the playing cards for 10 years, basically. And I it may have been him who came up with the logo. Oh, cool. Yeah. I love that 
it's like completely unassuming. You wouldn't even know there was a bar there if you didn't know it was there. I know that that's obviously on purpose, but were you worried at all about like actually getting people through the door as being like a completely new bar? You guys don't have any background in it. I'm assuming didn't know many people in the industry. Yeah. Did you have to do advertising? Like how did you actually get people to know where it was? Well, I, yeah, I mean, weirdly, it didn't concern us at the time because we felt so strongly in, in, the, <laughs> in the premise of it that, uh, and people did say, you know, I remember the musician, first musician I booked said, you know, this is, you, you're, you're going to fail if you don't put, you need advertising boards and, and everything outside. So people did try and counsel us. But what we decided was to... Um, we were just going to use press. So we, we used a woman called Su Lin Ong, who was very well connected in the industry. And also Facebook and word of mouth. And that, you know, yeah, I mean, it worked in the end. Yeah, yeah. I, okay, so you didn't have to spend very much to no. get people in, I guess. And then it was like word of mouth. As long as every person that came in and had a good time, they would tell people because, you know, it's not, it's quite uncommon to find those hidden places in London. And it certainly was at the time. I mean, they're so popular now. They've almost, you know, uh, not had their day, but, you know, it's been done to death now, the speakeasy thing. But back at then, it hadn't really hit London. There was a place called Pearl that opened about three months before Nightjar and Milk and Honey had been around. But beyond that, there weren't that many places. So it was quite unusual. And we believed that, you know, people would love it. Um, And the cocktails are so good and really like craft style cocktails how did you find someone to you and your husband had this dream but like you needed to pull in kind of every piece to make it come together so (laughs) and I always think people you know they see the final product and they think wow how did you mastermind this but you really it's just a it's just a sort of case of putting one foot after another you know um it's not like you start with the 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 final product and work your way backwards you know you build it slowly and um essentially we had men had been working at um I forgot that actually he'd been working at Soho House Shoreditch House as a bartender alongside teaching to get some experience in bartending he did that for about a year at the same time And he'd met a guy there who was going to run the bar with us. But it became quite clear um, after a while that that guy was not going to work out because he just went dark. He stopped returning phone calls. He obviously got cold feet. So we hired a consultancy company called Shaker and they helped us build bars and find the key staff. And on a night out with them in London, checking out the cocktail scene, we ran into our first bar manager, Marion Beck, in Notting Hill, and just pitched him the idea. He had actually been working at Pearl and different places, and we pitched him the idea of this uh, old school bar where everything's um, homemade and we're going to sort of unearth all these historical drinks that have been forgotten. And he loved the idea, and he basically came for a sort of interview, uh, made us drinks which we were blown away by and then and then after that you know he was sort of first piece in the puzzle puzzle really and he stayed with us for five years and he now owns the Gibson which is sits quite neatly between Nightjar and Oriole. Yes I love the Gibson yeah. yeah. He was a real um, coup because he's a magnificent bartender an artist really I mean he masterminded all of these you know, this idea that you had to have the right vessel and, you know, the right garnish to complement the drink. And um, 
he had the skill to pull all of those elements together. The look of those drinks is really was really his his work from from the beginning. And then coming on to the live music. So you you said you went and did an MA in it to kind of understand how to put it all together. Yeah, I did it. It wasn't. It was in um, at Birkbeck, um, a live performance, producing for live performance, theatre and live performance. And uh, yeah, it was useful. It was also just to sort of keep me busy because it was very boring waiting to find your, you know, you say, oh, let's start a bar. And you think three months later, you'll have a bar and you'll be running it. But it actually took about two years. So um, that was quite frustrating. But yeah, I did that. And then there were some places that were uh, open at the time. One was called Last Days of Decadence, I think. Yeah. And I just went and scouted. I went there and I went to upstairs at Ronnie's and uh, the Blues Bar and started scouting for artists. And then, of course, once you have a few, word gets around. We did at that stage think it was going to be more of a cabaret bar. So we tried some of that out. But actually, because of the way that Night Jars laid out, it doesn't really work very well as a cabaret bar. And also... We wanted an environment where people could come and listen to the music or not listen. And it was just, you know, it was part of the fabric of the place rather than being a live music venue. So through trial and error, we worked out who who were the best um, musicians who fit best. And they gave them residencies, really. Yeah. Have you had any um, dream bands come in? <laughs> um we had at Oriel because we 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 it's sort of an interesting thing, you know. There's like a there's like a, I think we have the best sort of vintage popular music artists in London, and they're sort of a certain strata. Um, but then if you have dream bands, you're kind of you're talking more live music venue um, places. But we did when we opened Oriel uh, want to try and develop a relationship with the Barbican and have their bands come afterwards. And we had uh, Winton Marsalis's band from the Lincoln Centre in New York come and do a late-night gig after one, you know, a couple of their gigs at uh, the Barbican. And it was amazing. I mean, this, you know, they were amazing. But unfortunately, he didn't come. <laughs> so we oh. were really excited about meeting I got excited about meeting him. He's, I don't know if you know, but he's a, um, an, an incredible trumpeter from New Orleans. And he's the director of jazz at the Lincoln Center. And he's wonderful. And um, But yeah, he didn't come. <laughs> so, oh. yeah. <laughs> so almost. <laughs> almost. Almost. <laughs> But yeah, no, I think our, the bands that we have, I mean, some of them, some of them are, I mean, most of them are brilliant, brilliant musicians and actually have played at the Lincoln Centre themselves. So, you know, but I guess you have to just sort of know about that kind of music and um, and appreciate it, really. How do you and your husband split your jobs and, and what's it like working with your husband? Uh, well, <laughs> well, actually, it's brilliant working with him and um, we're very, diff- very, very different so we see kind of pressures in the business at, in, at different places and um, we sort of work quite independently. Um, you know, we like come together to discuss the sort of main issues or how we're going to strategize or deal with problems. But then in our day-to-day work, we're usually working on different, different projects, different sides of the business. I would definitely say that he is, has got more of the kind of financial head Whereas I'm due of the kind of HR and the, um, uh, you know, and all of the music side and things like that. But we do cross over quite a bit. 
as we take all our decisions together. Everyone asks that, but yeah, I, I can't really say anything bad about it. It helps in business and in life to know what your partner is managing, you know, what, there's, what stress they're dealing with. I do admire people that run businesses by themselves. I, you know, I mentioned my mum. She's run her this residential care home for 35 years by herself. And it's, it's so, it must be so stressful to do it by yourself and not to have anyone really to bounce ideas off or to you know, manage you through the difficult times. So I can't speak highly enough about working with my husband, but I do understand that it doesn't work for everyone. That's good. That's good to hear. That's great. Yeah, it's wonderful. So how how long was Nightjar open until it got to a point where you were like, yeah, we can actually open a second? Like at what stage are you? would you say um, yeah. you can do that? I think probably in about year three, we'd started thinking about expanding. And we started looking properly at, at that time. And it took a good two years before we found somewhere which would become Oriole. But um it was mainly because the kind of climate had changed and loads of people were getting into bars and speakeasy bars in particular. And, you know, there just wasn't as much on the market. Or if there was, they were asking outrageous premiums for, for them. We had been kind of spoiled by Nightjar because we didn't pay a premium for the site and and we had a reasonable rent. So we were being quite picky. And then eventually Oriole came along and it did, it was premium free and it had, I mean, it had a heftier rent, but we just thought it was, but it had, you know, character and things. So we were quite starry eyed about that. And I think probably overlooked just how big it is as a venue, because, you know, if you have a big venue, the costs are just much higher. I, I fit out costs, for example, you know, just eat the, the amount of tables you need and the wa- amount of wallpaper, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so that it, I think we found Oriole. Every every bar takes about a year to set up. So we found Oriole a year before it finally launched. And yeah, and very swiftly actually found, I think within a year, had found Lab, which would become Swift as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what? how come you decided to go for a third so quickly? Well, I, so I suppose the thing is we've been looking. You know, I, I have this sort of... Um, this view that, you know, it's like as soon as you start putting energy into something, ultimately it will come back. So just by virtue of looking so keenly for all of that time, this venue, you know, lab came came into it, came, sort of came round the corner. And it, yes, it came too fast because we'd also just had a baby before opening, <sighs> our second baby before opening Oriole. I remember saying to my husband, he'd said, oh, lab's come up in Old Compton Street. And I said, don't go, because if you go... <laughs> You're going to, and then we've got to open another bar. And it's been really hard work opening, you know, opening uh, a a second venue, b a a venue like Oriole, which you know we sort of naively assumed that having operated one, it would be you know sort of walk in the park. But each venue has its own character and its own problems and you know new booking systems and everything really. And I was trying to nurse a baby at the same time. So I was just coming out of that and then Lab came up. So I, I, I counselled him not to go and he ignored me and went and then came back and said, um, it's amazing, we have to go for it because it was a pretty good deal. And we had had a, another idea for a bar that we'd been kind of nurturing, which was based on a visit to in, that we'd taken a couple of years before to Barcelona and we'd gone to... Europe's oldest bar, Boadas, 
which is a standing bar, kind of triangular, a very small uh, triangular-shaped bar, and it, it's all standing, so it's got a ledge all the way around. Uh, you know, sort of very old-school bartenders in white jackets, and they I don't think they have a menu. They just mix you classics um, to order. And I remember thinking, gosh, this is great because it's um, it's sort of historical. It's from that time when cocktails were such a part of your everyday and it didn't require any of the sort of booking or the, you know, nightjar sometimes weekend nights are eight weeks in advance to book because it's small. And I love just the idea that, you know, they were so, it was such a, that cocktails were so part of the fabric of your day that you just pop in and have one, you know, before going on your way to somewhere else. So we, we thought that actually Lab could be the perfect space for that because of it being in Soho, near theatre land, etc. And so he was right in that it was it was the perfect venue for that, and we just didn't feel that we could we could let it go. Did you have to apply for funding for both of those, or just Oriel? So we, yeah, we we for Oriel we financed it through remortgaging and also. Because money was, that was the sort of cheapest way to get money at that point. And then also, um, you know, family and friends uh, bought in. And we mm. found uh, shareholders. that We also got a shareholder through a company called Invest UK, who I don't, I don't know if they're around still, but they were putting um, investors in touch with businesses in the UK. And I think the investors could get a UK visa for their investment. Uh, they had to sit on the board and so we have a, 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 a Hong Kong investor from that time. And then again, we had to remortgage a bit more for Swift and then get other investors as well. That was quite a sort of leap up, really, because now suddenly we were uh, had to report to people about all of the sort of business decisions that we'd made. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, after Oriole opened, we became much more business minded because, you know, you just have to. Uh, you don't you know you have to make good business decisions and it's different from having one bar that you both work in most of the time to having such sort of big company really yeah yeah absolutely which one do you spend the most time in (laughs) um actually our lives after opening Oriole became very sort of office hour business you know sort of office hours basically so in terms of uh, working in the bars our job is really to go and check on them so probably equal amounts with more time spent at Nightjar and Oriole than at Swift because at Swift we have operating partners Mia Johansson and and uh, Bobby, Bobby and um, they you know we trust them really completely to to run that bar so when we go there, it's really just to, um, when we go to any of the bars, really, it's just to sort of enjoy ourselves and make sure everything's ticking over. Yeah, it's nice, nice position to be in. <laughs> um, could you tell us, just for any listeners looking to open up their own bar, any kind of like learnings you found or bumps you hit along the way that you weren't expecting for any of the bars? Yes. Um, <laughs> so... I think, well, the first thing to say is that, you know, we, we didn't really have any business training and, you know, have had to learn everything on the job. But I think that that's, you know, part of the thrill of actually doing your own thing is, is that you never just have sort of one job to do. You have about 15. And um, 
that has been something that's been really good. That 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 that's one of the advantages actually of 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 being an entrepreneur is that you get you know life is so varied. It's stressful, but it's very varied, and you learn loads of skills. But obviously, without having any uh, you know academic experience or uh, uh, understanding, you know, like a, like for example, a business degree, you do you do obviously make mistakes, and they can be quite costly sometimes. For example, we, we at, at some point, but Nightjar went from becoming was, from being just a bar to being a brand and we were quite late trademarking it and when we came to trademark it it turned out that someone else had trademarked the name four days before and uh, then we had to enter into a trademarking dispute um, over our bar name and I mean they were a very big company that had been floated on the stock market. So we were up against sort of giants, really. But we were obviously determined to win. Um, but, we, and it, but it ended up being quite costly. I mean, we had to pay, you know, big lawyer fees and barrister fees to eventually get them to back down and to rescind. And we managed to get it. But that was a mistake. And, uh, you know, had we known, we probably would have done it before. And then, of course, once you've got your trademark, you have to you have to be seen to be defending it all the time. So it continues to be a costly um, process. What have you done with it? Other, I mean, have you got, tried to go into merchandising, or was it just you just well, wanted to? Actually, it was to. Um, we were doing it because uh, you know you you want to own your trademark so that no one else can can trade as you and then and then tell you that you can't trade as yourself. But um, but we had been planning to expand Night Job, but. But internationally, and and also, yeah, I think probably later other things like drinks or uh, um, you know uh, uh, bar equipment or something like that. So we've had a few full starts with trading internationally. So we're having to review it now in year ten. But yeah, essentially, it's just a sort of protective right over your IP. And you know, yeah. uh, it's amazing the amount of people who come along to Nightjar, you know, I'm sure other bars and think, God, I love this. I'm going to open this where I live. And they they don't think to change the name. They think they're just going to open exactly the same thing. And, you know, all of that intellectual property is ours. So you do have to be quite careful about that. But yeah, there have been other costly errors and things. The thing about businesses is that you every year you're faced with a new challenge of some sort that you have to work your way through and it's never it's never really plain sailing there's always some but that is part of the thrill of it as well that's very insightful thank you mm-hmm. um, I like to finish all my interviews with asking when you're not drinking at one of your own bars where are you going oh good question good question okay I really like um Satan's Whiskers I'm thinking about London bars now Satan's Whiskers in Bethnal Green. I don't know if you've been there. But they do, it's very cosy. It has a sort of Edward Hopper look about it outside because it's um, got blinds, you know, and it's next to a gas station. And then when you have a very strong music program, it's all recorded music, but it's all like early 90s hip hop and things. And they never stray. Many bars, I think, do forget how important music is and they just sort of allow people to put on playlists willy-nilly and it has a huge effect on the atmosphere. There you always know what you're going to get and they're very sort of straightforward, always very good drinks. And I also quite like, I mean, I obviously love my own bars. Um, (laughs) I am quite a, um, I do quite like the hotel bars as well for a bit of glamour. Um, (laughs) 
So I'm thinking like the Connaught and um, and Dukes and things. But yeah, I think that's those are probably my favourites. Oh, great. Thank you so much. My pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Gosh, so much to take away from this episode. First of all, there were so many companies and names of people that you should probably take a note of if you're thinking of opening your own business. In fact, I'm actually going to start keeping a list of these on my website. So that's yourtablesready.co.uk. On this episode, I think the key takeaways were first that dirty word that kept coming up, trademarking. We heard this with Corazon and now again. I'd say put checking trademarks and copywriting at the top of your list. Otherwise, you're throwing all your money away into a bottomless pit that is litigation. Plan for things like a year-long fit-out if you're looking at bricks and mortar. I love that Roshan did an MA in production. In that time, perhaps you can do something like that or just keep a hold of your current job and just knowing that it's going to take a while to open up your own place. Finally, trust your instincts. It's good to ask people for their advice, but it doesn't mean you have to follow it. These guys like the name Nightjar and they didn't want to have advertising for their bar and that worked out perfectly for them. Okay, that's it. You can order Nightjar's craft cocktails to your door. I highly recommend it. It's a nice change from the old gin and tonic. Okay, thanks so much for listening. See you guys next week. <laughs>